entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Some weeks back, we talked to Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project. He talked about a lot of very important high-tech issues with regard to disclosure of UFOs. And a lot of our listeners had comments on our message boards, the PowerCast.com message boards, on the subject. So we've invited Dr. Greer to return on this week's episode to talk about that and other subjects. I'm repeating we're not in Kansas anymore. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Dr. Greer, since we had you on the show last time, I've uh, gone onto Google Video, and on Google Video is the two-hour DVD of some of the highlights of the Disclosure Project testimonial. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of really compelling testimonial from witnesses that, quite frankly, astounded me, people who are obviously knowledgeable, people who are obviously on the inside of this this enigma. And, uh, I mean, some of the specific testimony really blew my mind. My first question for you is, um, what happened? I mean, to me, there's more than a half a dozen smoking guns in this testimony. And uh, I noticed that a lot of this was from, uh, I guess, 2001. What has happened in that interim? What has been the reaction to this witness testimony? Well, actually, the reaction's been very strong. I mean, we've had a, a many members of Congress inquire about it that I've personally met with, and uh, as well as uh, people in uh, other countries. Uh, but as you know, former Minister of Defense in Canada, Paul Hellyer, uh, saw it and was really quite amazing. And I ended up meeting and, and had a press conference up in Toronto in May. The World Affairs Journal had a, a whole section of their journal that is read by most of the foreign ministers and prime ministers around the world. It's really sort of the international counterpoint to the Council on Foreign Relations Foreign Affairs Journal, and uh, they have been pursuing this uh, issue very actively. Um, mm -hmm. And, of course, it was covered very extensively on the BBC and, and uh, throughout the Chinese media and elsewhere. So um, what's interesting is that the, the least informed people in the world on all of this, I believe, are Americans, which is an interesting thought in and of itself, but it makes sense since the power center for the world right now is in America. You would expect the uh, controls on this sort of information really being propagated would be strongest within the United States. And even with that said, uh, on our website, we've had millions of people view the entire two-hour um, video of the um, National Press Club event. And I think what amazes people is when they realize that this is a very small tip of the iceberg of the military and intelligence and corporate people we've identified. There are now uh, at least 500 of these uh, people. And these men and women are really heroically willing to come forward and uh, 
open Congress uh, with uh, secrecy-free hearings, I might add, uh, and uh, tell everything that they know about these uh, operations. I have a uh, former Air Force three-star general who would like to do that and come forward. So uh, this is not, you know, speculative. And uh, the, the testimony ranges from, uh, you know, colonels and air traffic controllers to senior FAA officials to uh, people who are manning the Strategic Air Command uh, nuclear facilities. And, you know, these are not people who, you know, just fell off the turnip wagon. These are people, and they also, I might add, have a corroborating witness testimony to the same events, other people, as well as government documents uh, and what have you. So what I say to people is that we do have smoking gun information. The question is, uh, how are we going to get it moved to the next level of disclosure? And I think that that's going to require a very serious effort within the mainstream media, and that hasn't happened because the mainstream media, I believe, is the only institution more corrupt than politics as people think of it. You know what? Maybe you can expand on that, Dr. Greer, but let me first tell our listeners you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking with Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project. If you go to the disclosureproject.org, that's disclosureproject.org, you can learn more about what they do. The videos that David and I are referencing here is called Disclosure Witness DVD, which has been posted over at Google Video. So if you do a search for Disclosure Project on Google Video, you'll find this in two one-hour videos, a part one and a part two, and the amount of testimony here is incredible, and we'll go into more of that in a few moments. But let's talk about the corrupt press, and what ways is the press corrupt? Well, you know, in America in particular, I think people are very naive. It's, it's like you tell a lie often, you tell, and you tell it often enough, uh, and people will believe it. People believe we have a free press, but we don't. Uh, and I think it's important for people to understand. Uh, I have up on our website at uh, disclosureproject.org a CIA document from 1991 that clearly states that, as of that time, that they had assets within all the major media, wire services, news magazines, and networks to alter, change, kill, spin stories as needed. Now, I have personally seen that happen. For example, while in the last five years we've been moving this information and these, these military whistleblowers uh, out to the public, institutions uh, such as 60 Minutes, Primetime Live in 2020, ABC News, uh, and other mainstream media people have wanted to do stories on this. I'll give you a name. Ira Rosen, who was the executive producer of ABC Primetime in 2020. He had been Mike Wallace's right-hand man at the 60 Minutes and got an Emmy for his research there. He actually came to my home here in Virginia near Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home, and met with us to discuss this. And I gave him all 35 digital hours of my director's cut of the 110 hours of this top-secret uh, testimony. He took hundreds of pages of top-secret documents back with him. He told me this was the most important secret he had ever come across and that, you know, he really wanted to do a series of one-hour programs on Primetime Live in 2020. Well, after the Disclosure Project uh, press conference in 2001, I got back in touch with him, and I said, Ira, where is this program? How are you doing with it? He says, well, Dr. Greer, they won't let me do it. I said, Ira, I said, you, you told me you were the executive producer in charge of all these programs. Yeah, who's there? Yeah, well, I don't own the network. And I asked him, I said, who are they? He just said, uh, well, Dr. Greer, you know who they are, rather ominously. And I do know who they are. There's this uh, sort of a, a wrong idea out there 
that the, the Washington Post and Newsweek and all these big media conglomerates uh, actually can tell any story they want. They can't and they don't. Uh, we've proven this, I mean, over and over and over again. I'll give you another example. Peter Jennings wanted to do a, a two-hour special on UFOs for ABC News. Of course, I was skeptical he'd be allowed to do anything serious, but we got involved with it on the ground floor, and the Mark Obenhouse is an Emmy Award-winning documentary maker. He was there. Uh, he and I met. I met with his other associate producers for a couple of days of meetings. Uh, we gave them everything we have, and when they finally came out with that special a couple of years ago, they had sanitized out every single military top secret witness that you refer to on this videotape that you saw, all of it was still on the cutting room floor. It was people from trailer parks saying they saw a light in the sky, yada, 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 you know, ad nauseum. This is what happens. And I think that the, what the American public are going to have to do is demand an accountable media and a new media. You know, I have found that on Capitol Hill, for example, that there are senior members of both parties that I have met with. And I'm talking chairman of committees who are very interested in this, but they said, you know, if we touch this, it's like the third rail. We're going to get zapped, and we're going to be called uh, Senator Moonbeam or something, and the media are going to pillory us. So what has happened is that this sort of transnational covert group that really runs the financial, corporate, technological, high-tech, really high-tech, secret programs around the world uh, really also control the big media. I don't mean the small media, and I'm certainly not talking about your show or a small local show, but when you start talking about CNN and you start talking about ABC News and these sort of entities and the Washington Post Company and Newsweek, these people are absolutely pulled on a leash, and I have seen it. You know, the, the military affairs correspondent for the Wall Street Journal did a very, very long interview with me and some of our witnesses, and then he wasn't allowed to run with that story. Hmm. So there's a book out there called, the title's Into the Buzzsaw, and that Gore Vidal did the uh, forward for, and it talks about journalists who have gotten close to very explosive stories and have had their lives threatened or their careers ruined and seen how these things have completely been kept secret. Not a conspiracy theory. The fact is the media is the single biggest problem to disclosure, ironically. Along those lines, Dr. Greer, some of the uh, witnesses who go on record on this video I watched on Google Video, people like Brigadier General Stephen Lovkin. I mean, when you have a Brigadier General, that's not just anybody. That's a fairly high-placed authority. To your knowledge, have these people had negative repercussions in their personal lives? Have they been threatened or have they had pressure put upon them after putting their faces and their names and their testimonies into the public record? You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
Steinberger and the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to contact us, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com. And don't forget our dynamic and spirited message boards. We have to have new phrases every episode, by the way, Dr. Greer. But David asked a very important question there, so we're anxious for the answer. Go ahead, please. Yes, well, you know, it's interesting, and it's a bit of a, actually a long answer and a short answer. The short answer is no. Not a single one of these men or women have had anyone even call them and tell them to be quiet. The long answer is that that was not the case in the 90s. Now, when I started putting this effort together in 1993, and at that time, as you may know, I was briefing the Clinton administration and Clinton's first CIA director, R. James Woolsey, on this problem. You know, here I am, an emergency doctor, trying to save lives day and night in the ER, and I'm doing shuttle diplomacy to the UN and to the, you know, the CIA, trying to get this thing disclosed. It was a nightmare for me. But to be honest with you, in the 90s, we did have some security problems, and some folks came to me from within some of these classified projects and asked if we wanted protection, and I said yes, and I authorized protection to be put in place. At this point, we have not had anyone uh, so much as make a phone call to tell any of these people to be quiet. Unfortunately, this was not always true. Uh, we did have some really terrible things happen in the 1990s. There was a former CIA director, Bill Colby, who was uh, in the 90s was going to hand off an operational energy device that was based on studying the extraterrestrial vehicles that have been looked at over the last 60 years or more. And the week he was going to meet with a member of my board of directors, they found him floating down the Potomac River. And his best friend, who's a full bird colonel, set up the meeting, told us, and came to the funeral of an associate of mine who was assassinated, helping us get this out, that uh, he had been taken out because he was defecting from this group. It was at that time that I said, we're going to put in place what we have to put in place to see that this never happens again, and we did do that. Well, you're dealing with the ultimate, uh, the mother of all dirty tricks. Absolutely, absolutely. You see, I'm wondering here, is it strictly UFOs that gets the CIA or whatever riled up with the press? And the reason I wonder about that is because you could read the New York Times, for example, and the New York Times will have articles in there that, cover NSA surveillance of American citizens, and that seems to get out there. But when it comes to UFOs, that's where we're seeing a problem, evidently, right? It's not just UFOs, but it, it has anything to do with a matter that would alter the balance of geopolitical power. And the reason this issue is key to that is because, you know, nobody in the business, by the way, uses the word UFOs. They use the word extraterrestrial vehicles. They use the word exotic propulsion devices. They use the word fast walkers if they're at NORAD tracking these things on a dedicated console number 52, if you're listening. Now, you know, this term UFO was only invented after they knew they weren't unidentified and they knew they didn't fly, not in any normal aerospace sense of the word. You're dealing with devices, many of the ones that are seen, by the way, by people are man-made, and they are based on very advanced energy and propulsion devices. Some of them are extraterrestrial in origin, but the point is, is that the information around this whole subject, which has become a wastebasket word, UFOs, and has its own sort of cachet of kookiness and, you know, and abductions and all this stuff, and I have a baby floating around Alpha Centauri weirdness. Oh, you don't? Okay, just wanted yeah, to check. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you get all this crap, but the point is, is that the UFO 
word was invented after they knew that that's not what they were. And so it's a sort of a Orwellian mind screw. The point is, is that the energy and propulsion systems behind these things, what you have to understand, would forever alter the grip this particular group has on how the world runs. You know, there's two or three hundred individuals and corporations that pretty much run the world. And it was interesting when I was at this um, press conference with the former Minister of Defense, uh, Paul Hellyer, in Toronto. He very uh, directly said, look, there's two governments. There's the government that we elect, and it basically has no control over anything important. And then there's this permanent government. <laughs> and this permanent government is real. And there's sort of, you know, this naivete, because it's, this myth is perpetuated by the corrupt media that everything, you know, God is in heaven and everything is right, you know, uh, because people don't want to know the fact that basically uh, democracy, that my mother's family, who were actually prisoner of war with the British during the Revolutionary War, fought to establish in the United States and, and other countries, really has been overtaken by a transnational kleptocracy that is oriented towards amassing enormous amounts of power and wealth in the hands of relatively few. And this is what it's all about. If you talk about bringing out an energy system, a propulsion system, that would extract energy from the fabric of space, and that's what we're talking about, that doesn't need a payload of fuel, you would forever change the power dynamics on this planet, literally and figuratively. And so you're talking now about someone's $200 trillion piggy bank, known as oil, gas, coal, fossil fuels, nuclear power, centralized electric utility grids. All that stuff has been obsolete since before I was born. This we can prove. Now, the question is, you know, many people say, well, gee, wouldn't that be great? We'd solve global warming. We'd just solve world poverty. We wouldn't have to be in the Middle East. And I say, yeah, it would be a great thing, except the folks who are really calling the shots would also no longer be able to maintain the tight, centralized control that they have today. And so it's really an issue of geopolitical power and lots of it. We're not talking about, you know, uh, something that's a minor issue. This would be a bigger revolution technologically than everything that's happened between the dawn of the Industrial Revolution and today. But here's a question that comes to mind, Dr. Greer, because this is a topic I've done some research on, and, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about. If we assume that at this point, with the current rate of consumption of natural resources like oil and coal and natural gas, that what we're essentially playing is a zero-sum game, okay? Right. If we extrapolate this into the future, 100, 200 years from now, essentially the world as we know it, if current tracks continue, is essentially shot. It's destroyed, essentially. Right. So if you have these power players that currently control all of the wealth and all of, basically, the power, you have a, a, an energy device. You have this thing that could extract energy from the fabric of the universe. Doesn't it stand to reason that these guys would be the first guys that would want to essentially control it, release it? And at that point, you're talking about even further wealth being generated. It seems to me like these guys are already positioned to be the power players in that scenario. That's a, a, a misconception that many people uh, looking at this subject have, have concluded. In fact, the CIA director had a similar question for me, and I said, look, mm -hmm. it's not that simple because, yes, of course, they already have these technologies. If you go to these compartmented projects that are at the Lockheed Skunk Works and elsewhere, they have them. But the issue is, if you have something that's the size of a heat pump or smaller, and it 
really no more esoteric to make than a generator. It costs a few hundred to a few thousand dollars, but there's no longer the flow of energy into it from the power grid. Same thing with the engine under the boot of your car. If you were to go to your, look at your car, you've got, say you're driving a Chevy Suburban, you know that engine's worth maybe five grand, so what? The oil it's going to use over the life of that car is worth somewhere around $60,000. So what you're doing here is that yes, there would be a new business for the, this new widget, this energy device that would extract energy from the quantum vacuum space or zero-point energy field, but there would be no need for the supply line and the centralized supply line. So you would suddenly see a very, very different world in how it's structured economically, geopolitically, technologically. Every village in sub-Saharan Africa and in India, for example, could be electrified, have refrigeration, light manufacturing, wouldn't need a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure for a power grid or for any of these uh, very expensive expensive fossil fuel dependent power plants, which are really a big barrier or gateway blocking development around the world in any way that's sustainable. So I think that you have to look at this in a, in a system-wide way and, you know, sort of second, third, fourth order analysis and realize that these guys understand that this would be the end of the world as we know it, to, to quote a, a good REM song, but I feel fine. You know, we should have made this transition in the 50s, 60s, 70s. We didn't. That's why we're living on borrowed time. This is why there's so many indicators within the natural environment telling us that we're overextending our stay on this planet the way we're living on it, and we need to change. But that's very difficult for people who would then see that their grip on the centralized economic and energy systems and technological systems of the, of the planet would slip away. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project. Go to disclosureproject.org to learn more. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to get in touch with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com or enjoy our spirited and dynamic message boards at theparacast.com. So let's go to the other part of that answer, Dr. Greer, please. Sure. And I think that one of the key things to remember is that big breakthroughs in these technologies occurred between the 20th. 20s and the 50s. I mean, you know, people are shocked when they hear this. If you go back and do a study of this and an ethnography of the whole culture around secrecy, you'll find that what when these things went black was early 1950s. I have an Office of Naval Research document that talks about their experimental work with T. Townsend Brown, the so-called B-field Brown effect that it caused this electrogravitic or magnetogravitic anti-gravity effect. This was actually open source uh, mainstream aerospace information 
nation. You know, Nick Cook, who was a writer for James Defense Weekly, a very prestigious journal, we encouraged him to look into this, and he did, and he came up with a book called The Race to Zero Point. And he also wrote articles a, a few years ago for James Defense Weekly about this. And this is a matter of fact-checkable reality that these technologies were known and being experimented with between the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. But by the time they really realized that they had something that was extraordinary and also that some of that research that was very much being done within the realm of human R&D got empowered and augmented by being able to study some of the extraterrestrial devices that we were able to acquire. This caused them to realize that, you know what, we better put the lid on this and lock it down. And that's when, by the way, Eisenhower lost control of it. Eisenhower, during his presidency, and I know he was bitter about this at the time of his death, and we know people who worked with Eisenhower, had essentially lost control of the military-industrial corporate laboratory financial complex. Now, he mentioned that publicly, too, by the way. He warned about the military-industrial complex. Do you feel this is part of what he was warning about? This is the chief thing he was warning about, okay. and I have no doubt about that. And because he uh, he knew about this issue, he had been briefed on it, but what happened is that this sort of the thousand tentacles of this octopus uh, got control of it and basically began to lie to him. By the time Jack Kennedy took Eisenhower's place in January of 61, and by the way, when Eisenhower said, beware the military-industrial complex, that was his last speech to the nation as president of the United States in January of 1961. Why does a five-star conservative Republican president and, and a five-star general say this? It was because he knew he had been stabbed in the back in this regard. Of course, Jack Kennedy also had an interest in the, this issue, looked into it, knew that these things from outer space, quote-unquote, I'm quoting from a CIA document we acquired from a source I have at the NSA, who had it and handed it off to us. It's in our book. <laughs> it's a very interesting read if you want to read it carefully as a document. But basically, Eisenhower and Kennedy in that era, they were really frustrated by this uh, secrecy that went out of their reach. You know, fast forward to the presidency of, of Clinton. You know, by the time I got involved with the Clinton administration and was an adult man at that point, what I found was that he was very much wanting to know about the subject, and so is the CIA director. And when I put together the witness testimony, the documents, and the project code names and numbers, and by the way, we have some of them, that he could use so that the president could penetrate this project, he chickened out. He put his tail between his legs and he ran. And this was one of the real disappointing experiences of my life, was seeing how our political leadership, when they get to the edge of this precipice, have always stepped back from it and are not willing to step into the breach. Yeah, as a corollary to that, Dr. Greer, what is your opinion about reports through the years of different types of election fraud that might have elected presidents? And we talk about 1960, for example, when Kennedy seems to have been elected by a lot of dead people in Chicago. <laughs> okay, we talk right. about the 2000 election, which was basically decided by the Supreme Court. And to this day, there were still controversies, which, by the way, we will be exploring in future episodes of the Paracast, over the election in 2004, especially Ohio. Ohio, which was certainly a pinpoint, turning point, pivotal point in that election. So do you think that the powers that be were just the political parties doing their own dirty tricks or electing presidents against the voters' wishes by playing with a few statistics or something else? Well, there's been corruption in politics since the beginning of time, and this is nothing new. Uh, I think what's disturbing is that becoming more high-tech, and with the electronic voting machines, the Princeton study that came out last week uh, clearly indicates that it's a, it's a child play to tamper with those and alter the results. You know, there were uh, precinct 
regions and, and counties in Ohio in the 04 election that had more people vote for Bush than are even registered voters in the area. I mean, this is not possible. So, I mean, there's obviously some problems going on, and it's not hard to do. The question is, who's doing this? I mean, I don't think George W. Bush himself is, but there are people who want to move certain chess pieces around on this board. And at that time, they wanted to keep that chess piece in play. You see what I'm saying? People are way too simplistic about understanding how power is exercised. It's not quite that clumsy. You know, now maybe many years ago, it was very clumsy when they whacked Jack Kennedy. And by the way, I've talked to one of the men who was on the logistics team to set up that assassination. There's no question that it was a hit from the corporate and intelligence community. The question is why Not the CIA? My own view of it is that James Jesus Angleton, who is the big mole hunter and leak stopper of the CIA, he's the one who signed off basically on, on Marilyn Monroe's death warrant. If you get my book, I have a new book out, Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge, that you can get at DisclosureProject.org. And that document is in that book. And I describe uh, how I discovered that uh, around that time, James Angleton was uh, very involved in trying to stop any leaks on this issue from coming out. And if it looked like it was a situation getting out of control, using contract people, he would then uh, authorize these folks being removed. Now, Marilyn Monroe, unfortunately, made the big mistake of getting on the open phone line threatening uh, Robert Kennedy and some mm-hmm. of her friends in York that she was going to hold a press conference to tell people what Jack Kennedy had told her during Pillow Talk about, quote, things from outer space that had been retrieved in New Mexico in the 1940s. I'm quoting from this CIA top secret document, which, by the way, has never been declassified, but which I acquired and have put out onto the street. I think that people have to understand that that isn't done in a direct way. There's usually four, five, six levels removed from the people who order it in terms of how it's effected. And that's my understanding. You know, Burl Ives, who um, uh, had been on our executive committee for CSETI and Disclosure Project before he died, Burl Ives, a very famous actor and singer, and was friends with Marilyn Monroe at the time that she was killed. And he knew that she had been murdered. She knew, they knew it wasn't an overdose or suicide. But they never knew why until I got this document, which is signed the day before they found her dead, by the way. This, this mm-hmm. document signed by James Angleton was signed, uh, I think, August 2nd, the 1961. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, let me tell our listeners you're on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Greer of The Disclosure Project. You'll learn more about his books and everything else that The Disclosure Project is doing at DisclosureProject.org. If you have a comment or a question about the show, send your letters to news at thepowercast.com and visit our spirited, dynamic, exciting, fantabulous message boards at thepowercast.com. Dr. Greer, let's continue with this thing here. Now, this CIA document that you're referring to, you say it's classified, but you got a hold of it. You've released it on the street. Has someone from the CIA come back to you and said, this is top secret, Dr. Greer. You shouldn't be releasing this stuff. I had an FBI guy say, you know, this is a non-declassified top secret document, and it's X number of years in prison and whatnot. If you, I said, well, fine, come put the handcuffs on, because my first call is going to be to Ted Koppel and to some other folks, and 
and I said, here's the headline, emergency physician goes to jail for releasing document that proves that the, not only are the UFOs real, but that the agency was involved in whacking Marilyn Monroe to keep it quiet. I said, you want that to hit the news? Go ahead and arrest me. And the guy's mouth dropped open. Well, I mean, you know, look. <laughs> Dr. Greer, but... But you'd make that call. So, yeah, I would but, say, come on, you know, if they want to do yeah, it, fine. It might but, but, Dr. Greer, I mean, okay. you'd make that call, but based on what you said before, Ted Kopp would hang the phone up on you, wouldn't he? No, not when it comes to something like that. You know, it's one thing to cover the subject. It's another thing to cover something where uh, someone who's a public figure, millions of people follow the work we're doing, millions, and that person is arrested, they wouldn't be able to keep that quiet. So, you know, what I tell them, I said, come on, make my day. You know, let's get on the dance floor. You want to put the bracelets on? I mean, I, you know, I hate to sound like that, but at a certain point, see, you do, you cannot give in. If you're going to do what I've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years, you absolutely cannot be intimidated by that kind of nonsense, by anything, even a death threat. Because if you are, you're not going to stay in the game. You're going to stay out there on the fringes. So if you're going to get in the middle of this situation, you're going to have to have the courage and to see it through. And this is the thing that I feel, I mean, where John McCain is absolutely right, the indispensable quality of so many things that our world needs is courage. We don't have much of it, and particularly in Washington and in our leadership. Many of them know what the problems are, and they know that this issue is real. They know what the solutions are. They don't have the courage to take on the big power guys to fix it. And uh, this was, of course, uh, what I describe in my memoir, this, uh, the new book, Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge, is, is really was my big disappointment with uh, Bill Clinton, is that he really got to the uh, edge of this thing. And, you know, uh, Lawrence Rockefeller hosted um, Clinton out at the uh, JY Ranch out in Wyoming, where I had visited with a lot of these spooks and uh, with the Rockefeller family. You know, we put together this, uh, oh, I don't know what it was, 600-page briefing document for the president. And, and Lawrence uh, hosted uh, Hillary and, and, and Bill Clinton out there to go through all this, and he, they did go through it. Uh, and, you know, uh, one of uh, Clinton's really good friends who used to live at the White House told me that she was sitting there going through this, these materials with the president, and he was, he was saying, well, I know all this is true, but they won't tell me a thing, not a goddamn thing, like that. Well, you know, you know what? You're the president of the United States. You've got to step into it and get it fixed. The problem is, one of his friends came to my home after I had this uh, three-hour meeting with the CIA director and said, you know, Dr. Greer, they're very supportive of the idea this information should have never been kept secret. It needs to come out. But they're all convinced that if the president does what you're recommending, which was an executive order to take control of this project and, and move it out, that uh, he'd end up like Jack Kennedy. And I burst out laughing, to be honest with you, at that time. This was in 1994. I said, oh, please, come on. This is like a bad John Le Carre novel. And he stopped me. And he said, no, we're serious. I said, Kevin, you're serious? You're talking about the President of the United States couldn't be protected if he steps into this? And he says, we don't believe so. So that was the beginning of the end in terms of um, you know, my innocence about the political establishment being able to fix this problem. Uh, I have found that members of Congress have also had similar concerns. And so you know, one of the men, a uh, Republican that I've met with, uh, who's on the House National Security Committee, told me, he says, you know, we're just window dressing. The real action happens elsewhere.
And I said, yeah, but you're the Congress, and you're the ranking Republican on the House National Security Committee. He says, doesn't matter. He says, because I've been following your work for years. It's great. Love what you're doing. He says, I'm not going to, we can't touch this. You know, it's, it's, it's rather, you know, uh, astonishing. And so when people ask me, you know, what has been one of the biggest disappointments of doing it, I mean, there's a lot of inf- information that's interesting and fascinating. But seeing the cowardice of our leaders that are out there has really been breathtaking. So, I mean, what's it going to take then? What are we talking about? Are the people of this country going to have to essentially step up and overthrow the above-ground government and the underground government? Or is this essentially game over? I mean, what are we talking well, about? Well, yeah, you know, it's a very good question. What, here's what I think, and this is why we're working very hard to identify people who understand these technologies. And I think what we have to do is, as a civilian group, do a civilian Manhattan-style project to build up these energy generation systems and bring them out independent of the government. And at that point, generate enough resources and enough funding to simply either create a new media that's powerful or take over a couple of the ones that exist. Now, people hear me talk like that. They go, you've got to be kidding. I said, no. Why not do a hostile takeover of CBS or ABC if you end up having something that would be a new technology that could begin to be the operating system for a whole new civilization? We can't sit back and think in a small way. We need to sit back now and say, look, here are the facts. Here are the technologies we know that are extant. These are not theoretical. Here are men that we know who have worked on these projects. Why can't we put some uh, resources, and I mean some serious venture capital funding together, you know, well, not billions, but a few tens of millions, and get these things built up and bring them out to the public? I think that's what we're going to have to do. I think it's a huge mistake for us to sit around and wait for the government or this other group to fix the problem. I think that we, the people, have to get together and do it. It's a real message of empowerment, and this is why I lay the responsibility for the situation in the world right back at everyone's feet. I don't think you can just look away and say, oh, big brother screwing things up. We all have a responsibility for the planet that we're leaving our children and our grandchildren, and I think we have to step up to the plate and, and uh, take some serious efforts and some very well-organized efforts to do this. You know, it gets so complicated on the UFO field is we've been exploring this thing for a lot of time, way before the show even premiered last February. And you find that a lot of people claim to have various elements of important knowledge, and a lot of this contradictory. So how do you look at this thing and say, is some of this really government disinformation, and is some of this true? How do you separate the wheat from the chaff? And frankly speaking, we've had a lot of comments about different guests on our show in our message forums, and some people will say, well, this person is maybe part of the cover-up. In fact, we had a couple of questions suggesting maybe Dr. Greer is assembling all this information, and maybe he's part of the disinformation. So how do you answer that? Well, if I was part of the disinformation, we wouldn't have a virtually zero funding in our bank account. The ones who are all washing a lot of money, they're part of the disinformation, and I can tell you who they are. But the fact is, you know, it, you have to do your research. And when I got involved with this field, I mean, like I said, I'm a country doctor here in Virginia. <laughs> you know, when I go to a meeting at the Pentagon, I say, look, I'm just a doctor here who got involved with this. My uncle designed the lunar module that put the first man on the moon, by the way. 
And uh, when I was a little kid, I, I had some experiences and saw UFO uh, pretty close range uh, when I was eight or nine years old, and I've had a lifelong interest. And But what you've got to do is go to the attributed sources, and that's what we've tried to do with DisclosureProject.org. We've tried to go to people, you know, ranging from the 40s all the way up into the 90s who were in military installations or in corporations or operations dealing with this subject directly and who had direct information, not secondhand, not rumors, you know, not people who, you know, stepped out of a trailer park somewhere and, you know, were telling some tall tale. You know, and, and you have to do that. And then you have to back it up with documents and you have to put together the mosaic. And what I've tried to do is put together the whole mosaic. Now, with that said, you're absolutely right. I believe more than 90% of all the information in the public domain on this subject is deliberately planted disinformation. You are in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project. Go to DiscloseProject.org to learn more about what he does, about his Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge book that came out recently. And I'm going to look at that book in more detail, possibly in the future, as soon as we get hold of copies of it. And if you want to contact us at the Paracast, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. Also, we welcome you to participate in our message boards with no adjectives. You can choose the adjective yourself <laughs> at thepowercast.com. Dr. Greer, do you want to identify possible sources of this disinformation so we could be forewarned, forearmed, etc.? Well, yeah, there are, there are, we can talk privately about that, but if in my book, Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge, I give a very good description of it. Basically, here's your litmus test. If something sounds like it's really designed to scare the bejeebies out of you, it's probably disinformation. Fear is one of the chief ways that masses of people are controlled. And you got to back this up to an, uh, sort of an anthropological uh, and even neurobiological study of humans. And the fight-or-flight response, the desire to survive, the early tribal roots of human civilization all come into play in terms of how good disinformation, I mean, I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but effective disinformation, let me say, is developed. For example, there's an enormous amount of information out there about good aliens and bad aliens and abductions and mutilations and vivisections and this and that. Oh, look, I mean, having taken a hard look at about 90% of, like I said, everything out there on this subject, I've come to the conclusion that it's very carefully concocted disinformation that's designed to lay the foundation for what a number of our military witnesses have described to us as a cosmic Gulf of Tonkin scenario where eventually they would like to be able to say, hey, look, we're not alone in the universe, but we need a few extra trillion dollars to put weapons in space and have the next level of military, industrial, financial aggrandizement by having another whole world to fight, like War of the Worlds. And so there's an enormous amount of information out there on this subject that I think is centered around trying to scare people and that there are advanced technologies, including things that look like UFOs that are man-made and creatures that look like aliens that aren't, that have been used to create a mythology around the subject that scares people. And I think it's very easily done. What a lot of 
people don't realize is that the work that's been done in electronic and also energy has had a corollary in the biological sciences. And speaking as a medical doctor, I'll tell you that the first cloned higher life form was not Dolly the sheep in Scotland back in the 90s. We have been dealing with the projects in this country that were sort of the, as you might want to look at it, the sort of uh, the furtherance of some of what was going on during uh, Adolf Hitler's uh, Third Reich that have dealt with some pretty crazy biological experiments. And it's my assessment that a lot of the information out there that has set up this new duality of, you know, good aliens and bad aliens, and we have to be, and now we have something else to fight out in space, has been a deliberate multi-decade plan to put disinformation out there to lay the foundation for a future conflict and a future aggrandizing of the same power centers that control the world today. Because just as the terrorism card can be overplayed to get things done that are wrong, so can this issue. And so the demagogues that are out there and the shills working for them are very capable of manipulating the subject into a matrix of a lot of fear and foreboding. And I think that that is precisely what has been done. It's very, very hard to get involved with this subject without quickly tripping over all kinds of terrifying ideas and, and scenarios. And I believe that this is something that has been deliberately done to eventually control human consciousness on the subject. And I think that's a very dangerous development. There's no question, Dr. Greer, that fear has become the primary manipulation vehicle in terms of certainly setting political policy in the United States. The GOP has been running this incredibly nauseating ad with a ticking time bomb showing, you know, specific images of Osama bin Laden and specific claims of aggression. And, you know, basically that's their whole play at this point. You know, are you going to trust someone else? Are you going to trust us to protect you? But, but that said, no, and, and, I, and I think that's absolutely heinous. Um, but right, that said, right. you know, are you suggesting, though, that, for example, in the case of abductions, and I have some issues with a number of the abduction cases I've read about. I don't buy 100% of this. But if... I don't buy any of it. I have personally well, have interviewed the men who are on the humans who have been running the abduction squads. I have a document from one of the private institutes that talks about how they set up the stagecraft, I'm quoting here, to effect the abductions. These are completely done by humans for their psychological warfare value. Here I'm quoting from a 1953 CIA document that we have that was officially declassified. If you look into this, Martin Cannon looked into this back in the 70s and 80s, and he ended up having 2,000 pages of research and documentation uh, confiscated and destroyed. But yes, there are extraterrestrials out there. I don't see that any of them are hostile. But there's an enormous amount of concocted... Now, people have been victims. Go back to the Richard Doty case, the, the, the famous case in New Mexico, where the Air Force Office of Special Investigations guy, Richard Doty, had uh, manipulated uh, this uh, research. But this man had been steered into an abduction case of a woman who was driving near the Sandia facility in Kirkland uh, in New Mexico. And she saw something she wasn't supposed to see, basically she saw the testing of an AR an alien reproduction vehicle, which is a man-made UFO. They docked her car, abducted her, gave her an experience, 
that made her think she had been abducted by, quote, aliens, put her back in the car and directed, and then this guy, Richard Doty with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, directed her to seek out this UFO researcher who got so entangled in this, he ended up in a mental institution. And that's a true story. You can check this. This is, I have the documents for this. That happened back, I believe, in the 80s. So this has happened over and over and over again. So it stinks to high heaven, and there's a lot of virulent and nasty disinformation and countermeasures that are done, and they're designed to either hide what they're doing in certain facilities or to put out a type of fear-based disinformation that could then eventually manipulate large numbers of people. You cannot go to a UFO conference without having just one thing after another. I mean, by the time you leave, you know, it's like going to Friday the 13th, the Halloween terror. And I think that this has been done through a very well-orchestrated design to convince people that there is a threat from outer space, Again, I'm quoting from a document that could control the masses of the world. And so instead of the world being united against uh, an axis of evil or this terrorist group, eventually it'd be like the movie Independence Day where, you know, we go out there and, hey, let's kick alien butt, you know, and it's all this jingoistic nonsense, the pablum of, of Hollywood. But still, it is very effective, I think, at convincing people that there's something they should fear. I think what we need to fear are very human elements that want to scare people into giving up more and more of their freedoms and giving up control to some huge transnational big brother. I have to tell you, though, Dr. Gray, I still find it hard to believe, for example, that something like the Betty and Barney Hill case is an engineered episode. I, I find that really hard to believe. And, have and you the met thing, them? Have I met Betty and Barney Hill? No, I have not. I met Betty I, Hill a couple of times. I know her. Let me just tell you, the technologies that have been fully operational since the 50s would curl your hair. And the ability... <laughs> Now, it's not that everything is. I mean, I think Travis Walton actually did have an experience on an ET vehicle because he ran underneath one in the woods and accidentally got electrocuted. Those things put out gigawatts, terawatts of electric energy. And what happened to him is that he uh, accidentally had an electrostatic arc hit him. It was like a lightning bolt. They stabilized him and then returned him. And if you actually talk to Travis Walton, it's not at all like the movie Fire in the Sky, which was complete disinformation. In fact, when I talked to Travis about this, and again, I go to the original sources because I'm able to do so. Most people out there who are consumers of retail ufology get the spin. They don't get the truth. And this is what's really concerning to me, quite frankly. But Travis Walton wasn't tortured on board that extraterrestrial vehicle. They saved his life because they probably had to defibrillate him. I mean, being an ER doc, what happened to him sounds very much like a bad electrocution that was accidental. And then once he was stable, they returned him. And his account of actually what he remembers on board that ET craft was that they were very supportive, very kind. He's the one that went out of control and started attacking them, and they had to restrain him. But then he was returned. I think it was, you know, there are cases where people have had encounters and very close encounters with these things. But to think that there is some kind of an agenda that oh, they need to come through interstellar space for my sperm and Marianne's eggs, oh, please. You know, this is, you know, anyone who knows the, a rudimentary amount of information about genetics and genetic uh, development uh, would know that you wouldn't have to do it that way. The, 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 so, so much of the stuff that's out there doesn't even pass the, the sniff test of scrutiny.
For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Faracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We continue our discussion, the final leg of our conversation with Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project. You know, a lot of criticisms people make sometimes of people in the UFO field who get involved are the result, of course, of the fact that they do have to make a living. So you write books to try to raise money to stay alive, feed the family, put food on the table, and also maybe enhance your research. And one criticism we had, or a couple of criticisms we had, on the message boards were about these seminars you hold where you're trying to call up UFOs. What's that all about? And, and can you answer some people who are concerned about that? Well, I think it's just common sense. This whole project started, by the way, out of a very simple assessment, and it's called a close encounter of the fifth kind. And that is, if there's intelligent life out there and they're using technologies that are very advanced, electromagnetic systems that interface with thought and interface with consciousness, which obviously they have, uh, and we go into this in a great deal of detail in, in a couple of the books I have out there, then why shouldn't humans bypass this monopoly that the covert sort of permanent secret government has on this issue and try to make contact or observe these things on our own? And we have. And so what I've said to people is that why can't humans be citizen diplomats? Just like during the Cold War, there were you know physicians who became citizen diplomats to the Soviet Union to help break down the barriers that were created and that were bringing us to new Nuclear, the brink of nuclear extinction. I think it's very important for humans to do a similar thing. And why not? Why should all UFO research be retrospective, just studying things that happened 10 years or 20 or 50 or 60 years ago? There's something going on. Let's say a, a big wave of sightings starts uh, somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. Why can't there be a rapid response team that goes there using various technologies and very advanced understanding of how extraterrestrial communication systems work try to make contact with them and let them know that there are some people on Earth that would be interested in contact in a way that wasn't militaristic or covert. That's all we're doing. And that's a, a, called Ambassadors to the Universe. And it's a training program. We do three or four of them a year. And it is a very important part of what we're doing because I think one of the, the things that has to happen is that if you understand the Sheldrake's morphogenic fields, uh, which I think has a lot of validity, things really happen by a, a certain pattern developing and then non-locally propagating, both in consciousness and in thought and in action. And I think that it's very important for us to begin to create a morphogenic field that's peaceful and that is trying to do something constructive with this issue rather than remaining in this state of fear. And so the whole CE5 initiative, as it's called, a close encounter, so the fifth kind of initiative, where humans attempt to make contact with these intelligent life forms is really about interplanetary 
diplomacy and interplanetary contact in a, in a setting that's peaceful and that goes beyond the prejudices and fears that humans often bring to the unknown. And we think that this is a very important thing to, to try to achieve and that we need to be doing more of it. We need to have some of our best people in the world and our, our most enlightened people on this planet involved in this issue in a very proactive, real-time way and not just doing research of things that happened uh, many years ago. And that's, that's why we continue that project and we continue to have some extraordinary experiences and success. The price you charge, this is to fund your operations and everything? No, it doesn't fund anything. It pays for just basics. You know, people are so, you know, I don't know, who, who asked that question? That's we had basically not anybody that, I guess anybody would know, just the people not, in message I mean, let me tell you, there is nothing, unless you write a book right. saying that you were just raped by an alien and you get a quarter of a million dollar advance from right. Random House. Sure. You're, you're living in a fantasy world. I don't know who you are and to ask, you know, to even in, look, I'm a medical doctor. I've given up like two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars a year for years doing this. If and I that's why I wanted you to explain this. Invasive, I couldn't sure. do it. I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing to suggest that anything we're doing is to generate revenue. I mean, of all the crazy things. And I mean, I'll tell you, there are people who've made a lot of money in this field. Okay. Those are the ones doing books and movies that scare the hell out of people who get the big six and seven digit advances. It sure as hell isn't people doing stuff like what we're doing. I have and to so, tell you this. Uh, from a personal experience knowing one or two publishers in this business who specialize in this stuff, very few people make a lot of money from books in this field. Occasionally you have the bestseller, maybe once every 10 or 15 years, but the average book... Yeah, but that's not true. But I personally know an abduction researcher who got a quarter of a million dollar advance for a book that was about just sheer bunk. So, you know, you're, what you're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. And so that's what I'm saying. The money is in the fear. And that is where the but if you're doing anything constructive or doing anything positive, I have never seen anyone get any real support. We'd like to see that change someday, but it's not going to change what we do one way or another. I don't care if somebody does or doesn't offer the support. It'd be nice if we had it. Certainly it's not our motive, but I can tell you that that's where the funds are. The funding is in things that are extremely either covert or playing the party line of fear. If you can stay on the party line of fear and disinformation, yeah, you can get some nice six and seven digit advances. I know people who've gotten them. Well, I'll tell you what, we're not going to get those advances on this show, I, I fear. Any case, right. okay. we appreciate very much you joining us again, Dr. Stephen Greer, and go to the disclosureproject.org, disclosureproject.org, to find out more about what he does, and there you can order a copy of his new book, Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge. And by the way, we have a link that will be posted at theparacast.com, so that you won't miss information on how to get that book. Dr. Greer, I appreciate you coming on and answering all the questions hard and simple. Sure. And we look forward to having you on again on the Paracast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Dr. You. Greer. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietnam. First, a quick reminder about next week on the PowerCast. We'll be hearing from Tom Hartman, who's going to talk about parapolitics, such as election frauds. He's a well-known radio talk show host. As many of you know, he's on Air America and also has a nationally syndicated show. You'll also hear from Linda Zimmerman, who will give us the heads up about ghosts in New York. And now, one of my favorite spirits... The one, the only, David Biedney. Jeff Ritzman is one of those very interesting combinations of extreme experiencer and dedicated UFO researcher. 
the range of experiences that Jeff had growing up led him to want to understand the UFO phenomenon. And in a previous visit to the Paracast, Jeff revealed some fascinating stories about specific abduction experiences and sightings that he had lived through from the age of five on. In today's episode, we're going to talk with Jeff about more of the topics that he finds fascinating in this realm, specifically his interactions with some well-known names in the UFO field, as well as some experiences he had in Gulf Breeze, Florida, a hot spot of UFO activity for a number of years. You know, David, that's one I'm really interested in because years ago I interviewed the fellow who possibly put Gulf Breeze on the map, and that was Ed Walters, a builder who mm -hmm. supposedly had his own range of sightings. Now, I interviewed Walters. I didn't believe him, and I'm really curious to see how Jeff handles the issue of Gulf Breeze because, as a matter of fact, Ed Walters, and he was also known as Mr. Ed originally was not the only. That's Mr. Ed too. The uh, horse is a horse. Please don't go there. Let's just go and sit down and listen to UFO researcher Jeff Ritzman as he returns to the Powercast. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Jeff Ritzman, in our previous part of the show, we were talking to Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project, and he said basically that all abduction cases are fakes and that if there's any genuineness at all to them, it's because they were engineered by the powers that be to fake all these events. What's your opinion? To be honest with you, Gene, it's like this kind of thing you hear every now and then, and I have to, I have to go back to back when I was really heavily involved in the um, in the whole abduction uh, investigative stuff because I, I was trying to talk to other people just to get an idea of, of what might have been going on with me and uh, I actually got involved with a couple of researchers that were that were fairly high profile at the time and uh, they started a what amounted to an abduction support group which I think was one of the very first ones ever uh, to be started anywhere where people would get together and talk about these kind of things and find similarities and that kind of thing I won't forget one time that there was a show on TV that week, of course, that everyone had watched in the group, and everybody was talking about it. And I believe that C-SETI was one of the, uh, the, the topics covered on this particular show. 
And I remember one researcher saying to me that needed to be done because what it did was it portrayed C-SETI in a very negative light, almost in the air of a cult-like mentality. And I, I really hadn't hadn't thought of them in that way. I had seen them on sightings before, which was a big show at the time. I remember this researcher, I said, what do you think about what they said about Greer and C-SETI? And I remember him saying to me, they portrayed it like it should have been, that needed to be done, because people often talk about the whole UFO subject as, oh, it's a cult. And what he said to me at that point was, you know, that's about as close to a cult as what you're going to get. And I think that needed to be exposed and that needed to be shown. The interesting part about that now and hearing what he's and now about this kind of thing is it almost seems to be mirroring other cases that I've seen that have adopted a cult-like mentality in that everything is false or everything is, you know, psychotic issues or it's the government. It's nobody's in really good contact with other things other than the person who's proliferating their own agenda. You know what I'm saying? So that kind of fits to me that he would say something in that vein because truthfully, you know, I've seen a lot of a lot of claims by Greer that I haven't seen any evidence of. I mean, they claim to be able to vector in they call alien craft to within several hundred feet. Where's the videos of this? I mean, this would be big news if this was actually happening. You know, we're talking structured objects, not just lights in the sky type stuff. And I'm yet to see one thing out there that supports that. I mean, not not so much as one video have I seen that supports that kind of. Uh, before David asks his question, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, UFO researcher. Jeff Ritzman makes his second appearance on our show. David? Well, Jeff, I asked uh, Dr. Greer that same question the first time he was on our show and, in fact, offered to go to one of these week-long uh, events that he did with a video camera to get the video of that thing coming in. But I have to say, the reason that we had Dr. Greer back on the show was that since we had him on the first time, I found, a, I guess there's a two-hour compilation of the hundred and some odd hours of testimony that Greer has compiled from these high-level military people. And uh, two hours of this are on Google Video, and I watch this stuff, and I have to tell you, the testimonial, the overall tone of it, and the bulk of the, the information was incredibly compelling. You had things like, you know, brigadier generals basically coming clean about the involvement of the government with this topic. It seems odd to me that here he's assembled this incredible compilation of very credible testimony, and yet you've got that on one end, and then the other end, there are these events of going out to make contact with the benevolent aliens. I don't understand that right. disconnect. You know, and I think a lot of people have a real, a real tough time discerning one project that he's involved with from another. I mean, you have the Disclosure Project, you know, which is doing the the testimony of ex-military and intelligence people, and then you have CSETI, which is, to me, is a totally different entity. I respect Dr. Greer for what he's trying to do with Disclosure Project, but at the same time. When I look at CSETI, and I've and I've you know I, I've been in the presence of, of members of that, and 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 I've seen different things that they've tried to do at different sites. Um, I know one particular place was Gulf Breeze that that I was down there, and there was some CSETI folks there. But uh, you know, it is weird that you would soil one thing with another that doesn't seem to be quite on the up and up. 
but you know, and I have to say this because this is, this has been a recent argument on a on a message board I was on that was asking what people thought of uh, Dr. Greer and all this, and and I said to them, I said, well, you only need to go to the CSETI website and look at where they're speaking of uh, lectures and and or these outings that you were talking about going on to Vector and Craft. You have to really read through that website because not only are you going to find on there that is it is really expensive and and um, and covers really very little except some training materials, which is the equivalent of like I guess books and so on and so forth. They are really expensive, but not only that, you also when you participate in one of those, you know those those uh, you know field projects, you actually have to sign what amounts, in my opinion, to a non-disclosure agreement that you cannot post any video of this event without their permission. It belongs to you and CSETI. You know, you can't disseminate the information at all. You cannot talk about what was talked about. You, I mean, it's all very quiet and hush-hush. And that, to me, that's immediately suspect right then and there. I mean, if you know how to do this kind of thing and, and you're wanting to be this diplomatic ambassador, then tell everybody what's the holdup. Well, that's the thing I didn't understand. There seemed to be a disconnect here where he's saying that the ways they've tried in the past with the disclosure project apparently haven't worked. You know, Uh whatever the media is controlled by the powers that be, whatever is causing it, it hasn't worked. So let's be goodwill ambassadors to the extraterrestrials to bring them here to present ourselves as friendly, as willing, as open. But then if he's conducting these training sessions and what happens isn't being disclosed, then is he any well, better than right. the it's people like who I, get involved? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I said that on the, the message board. Yeah, I said that on the message board. I said, isn't it weird that you know somebody who has a project called the Disclosure Project has a non-disclosure agreement that you have to sign before you can even get involved? I mean, that to me is just really, really crazy. And when I look at, at the whole contacting and being goodwill ambassadors and and all the training materials for that uh, you know I immediately have to ask what <laughs> what qualifications does one need to be able to be the ambassador to that and and I hate to say this but you know who is Greer to have to set something like that up. Wait, this is I mean, not new. Yeah. There have been programs through the years in the UFO oh, sure. field to get in touch with the aliens. I'll show you the way. I have the way and right. the truth and the method to contact the space people, and you work with me, and right. you will learn these techniques, too. And I worry about that. I'm concerned about that. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack Attack of the the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack, Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids in the grand and science fiction tradition. You 
entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in sure. the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. UFO researcher Jeff Ritzman joins us. In a previous episode, he talked about some very unusual experiences he has. And today we're going to talk about, I guess we call the good people, the bad people, and somewhere in between involved in UFO research. And if you have a comment or a question, send your messages to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com, or check out our message boards at theparacast.com. And as you might have heard in part one, we use your questions that we asked some of the guests and Dr. Greer got rather uppity when I talked about the money people spend for his courses and he said, well, the people who promote fear are really the ones who make money and the people who are not promoting fear are not really making all that much money. So that's how it goes. Well, just before we continue, guys, yeah. I just downloaded the confidentiality agreement from the CSETI site. And there's an interesting thing here. Um, I don't think a lawyer went over this and I'll tell you why. Here's the wording. I further agree that should I photograph or videotape any UFO-related events during field work or any phase of this training, that C-SETI and I shall share unrestricted use of said footage. I agree to provide C-SETI with the original video or photograph, if requested, or a first-generation copy, if requested. I further agree that any photographs or videos taken by me shall not be sold or released publicly without the prior express written consent of C-SETI. Now, that last statement essentially yeah. contradicts the first the one, the exactly. first statement. That if the, you're sharing are... access and distribution, how could they have veto power? It doesn't make well, sense. Unrestricted is the key word there. Right. Well, I would think then it's somebody who just wanted to disclose and spill the beans would simply say, well, the heck with you. I'm going to disclose it. Go ahead and sue me if you want. Hmm. All right. Well, it doesn't happen, though. I mean, that's the. We had a member on another message board had said, you know, I'm going this weekend. I'm, you know, I'll come back. I'll tell you everything. He came back. He said little to nothing. And eventually, the third just dropped out of sight. And I said, well, you know, there you go. I mean, it, you know, regardless of whether it's it's binding or not, people aren't doing it. You know, as far as footage of you know any of these craft, any of these sightings, I haven't seen anything, even barring what what was seen on like years ago on sightings and whatnot, uh, where he had his lasers and the sounds and everything going at the same time. I saw little to anything that would say there's anything other than airplanes. Uh, Is it possible that, that also at. that during these sessions, Jeff, they are given more stringent verbal? instructions oh, I mean, about what problem. to say and what they can't say, saying, look, if you say the wrong thing, I know you have the ability to do it, but if you say the wrong thing, folks, well, you're going to track the silence group, the men in black, the right. powers that be, and rather than have chaos, let us have all this come through us, and maybe if they give people a strong enough incentive after yeah. spending a lot of money for this session, maybe that's part of it. It may not just be the non-disclosure agreement that you see in writing, but something that is emphasized emphasize to them during the session. I'm not talking yeah, about hypnotic, <laughs> hypnotic oh, instructions. No, no. No. no, but there's always, you know, I mean, any of these cases like like this that you go through or any of these groups that you go through, you're always going to find that there's a certain amount of fear that goes on with them, you know, from, from a case that you've talked to uh, certain individuals on that 
you know, it is a fear-mongering type of, uh, of case, uh, right down to, you know, you don't want to disclose this stuff on your own because you may be attracting people that you're not, you know, equipped or prepared to deal with. You know, in other I mean, words, the government will come out after you, yeah, and you're I not mean, ready for that. So it would be in your best interest. Now we're speculating here, ladies and gentlemen. By the way, okay, I just want to make sure that everybody understands. Yeah, absolutely, we do not know, other than this non-disclosure agreement, what people are being treated to during the sessions until or unless someone comes forth and says, "I went to the session. This is what happened. This is." what didn't happen this is what was told to me that's all we know right now right i mean i should say you know that i'm not at all um you know opposed to going on one of these things but you know what i'm opposed to is you know forking out over five hundred dollars to do it i mean that's uh you know I, i've had uh, i guess depending on how you look at it i've had pretty good success already um you know without him in <laughs> in, 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 in seeing some stuff that i probably didn't want to see but you know it, it's um Throughout the years, I've seen these little these little groups pop up that uh, you know some of them get huge and some of them don't. And you know, I never wanted to belong to any group because I, I never wanted to subscribe to. I mean, even Mufon. I mean, I've I've never joined Mufon in my life, and and everybody has hounded me. Why aren't you in there? You'd be a great field investigator. Blah blah blah. I said because there are things that Mufon has said that I don't agree with. Well, let's talk you about know? that Mufon. Now, I'm a member yeah. of Mufon, a card carrying member of Mufon. Now, I do not necessarily subscribe to everything they say, but I'm a member to get the newsletter and get their content and everything. So tell me, sure. what is it, Jeff, that prevents you from joining? Well, at least uh, at least in my state, we had at the time we had a fantastic uh, state leader, and of course uh, at the time Bruce Maccabee was, I believe the 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 big cheese in Maryland for MUFON and probably still is. But there were speakers that would get brought in that. You know, I would think, why is this person at MUFON? I mean, there were there were people brought in to talk about everything from you know Venusians inside the planet Venus. I mean, that that kind of 60s, 70s, you know, uh, shtick of uh, of what UFOs used to be about. Um, <laughs> you know, and of course, then you get some interesting stuff. You would hear about you know local cases and whatnot, but. You know, I just got the feeling a lot of times that, that I'm not sure that they really valued a lot of what people coming into the group had to say or what they had to present, I guess is what I should say. It took me a little while to get acclimated to the group locally who who pleaded with me, you know, please join, please join. But at the same time, you know, there, I would read old newsletters that were given to me at meetings and whatnot, and there were some things said about certain cases in there that I'm like, well, how do you know that? And <laughs> I mean, I couldn't put my finger on any one thing, but I always thought that, you know, what if you get involved in a group that seems great at the time, but then all of a sudden just destroys its credibility in one move. You're right on the boat. You know, I, I'm not going to be on that boat. So, you know, it's, uh, and that could apply to anything from, you know, the most outlandish cultistic, you know, group right down to something as normal as MUFON. You know, I don't think it's that wise to be involved in any of these groups because you're always kind of railed into this is MUFON's official stance on it, or this is so-and-so's official stance on it, and this is what we believe. And, you know, why would you want to be put into a group where, you know, you're talking about answers, we don't even have all the questions yet for this right. thing. So, but you know, let, I, let I just have a, I have a problem with that, you know. 
Gene and Jeff, let me play devil's advocate here for a moment because I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Jeff. I mean, I there are very few groups in my life I've belonged to because I find that once you get more than two humans together, it gets a little ugly. Yeah. Um, well, that's that, I mean, why that, we have three people here, but we're not all humans, right, so right. it doesn't matter. You see? Oh, God. Gene, <laughs> Gene, take your meds, Gene. I am taking my You forgot my to take right your fun. Take, oh, take, drink, get, drink the beer. Yeah, yeah, drink the your beer. The pill bottle is empty, my friend. Oh, oh good. I had ten before the episode, and that's... And, it's not enough. And, and, and it's showing. Um, but no, but, but, but seriously, it, it, the reason that you would go to a MUFON meeting would be because there's an assumption that if there's a group of 50 people, you're going to find two or three people that you can have a discussion with about this topic that you'd have a hard time finding out in the real world. Look, you go to any group, and you're going to find versions of reality that are extreme. You're going to find you know, someone in that group is going to be out in left field so far that they're just out of sight. So uh, the problem is discussing this topic, what I've come to realize, especially through doing this show with Gene, is that it's so easy to step over the threshold. It's so easy to say something that more than a few people are going to misinterpret. It's so easy to, to just appear to be completely out of your mind that you almost have to step back and say, all right, look, there's a signal-to-noise ratio. There is some amount of signal that's useful, and there's usually some majority amount of noise that is exactly the opposite of useful. That's but, you know, the thing is, you look for those two or three people that maybe will help you further your own understanding a little bit. Isn't that worth it? I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that Seacrane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what Seacrane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Right now, click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. This is The Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next.
Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking for the second occasion on the show with Jeff Ritzman, a longtime UFO investigator with a lot of very strong viewpoints in the subject. If you want to get in touch with us at the Paracast, send your messages to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com, and check out our wild and spirited and action-filled message boards. We have to have different adjectives every time at the Paracast. And sometimes, as you heard in our interview with Dr. Greer earlier on the show, we do ask the questions that you ask of the guests, and sometimes they appreciate it, sometimes they get a little uppity about it. Jeff, you were about to say. Yeah, I have to look at, I mean, when I talk about, a, a, you know, with certain investigators or certain cases out there, of course, that are pretty high profile, you know, I have to really think back to a certain point where I was I was in an investigator's home and he was showing me some video that I believe was shot out of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And this was some of the most ridiculous looking footage I'd ever seen in my life. And to date, I still haven't seen that footage on any internet, on any show, on any broadcast whatsoever. And I remember saying to this guy, I remember saying, why, why, why isn't this on sightings? What are you doing? You know, what are you doing with this? He said, well, we have to look at it first, but you know, you always save your good stuff for a rainy day. And, and at the time, you know, I had only been into the whole field for probably six, seven years. And I remember thinking, Christ, is this all about money? You know, is this, is this all this, that this matters about? Is this just, you know, we'll hold this off for a rainy day when we don't have anything going on. And then we'll, we'll let this out. You know, and I was seeing different types of things like that going on over the years that blew mm-hmm. my mind. You know, you've got this fantastic footage or you've got something that's, you know, some particular case. And you're not letting that out because, you know, people feel that it, this has to be doled out in, in certain doses, you know, by... Or monetized, of, very frankly. Exactly. I mean, I, I think to um, back in 97, you know, August 6th, there was a uh, footage that came out of Mexico City of the really huge disc going behind the apartment building. And everybody probably remembers this. It it, it started out, oh, yeah. you know, across the street shot. It zooms into the disc. The disc goes behind the building, comes up over the rise of the top, and then disappears behind another building and never comes back out. And uh, that, was, uh, that was 1997. And just by sheer luck, I was able to get, you know, a first-gen copy of that film. And when I looked at it, I, I digitized it. I put it in the machine here, and, and I started doing just frame by looking at the movement. And, and this was being touted as, like, one of the best ever recorded. I mean, this was legit, and this was this. And when I started looking at it, I started seeing really good telltale signs that it was, a, you know, a composite hoax using a 3D model and a backplate of the video that was seen. And in particular, that when it rose over the top of the building, that the camera was shaking, but yet the disc was not shaking. <laughs> and that's pretty much, you know, when you see that image sliding across the film rather than rather than bumping with the camera at every exact point, you can pretty much tell that's not legitimate. That's that's a it's called camera matching. And when you have poor camera matching in a CG hoax, that's your that's uh, your smoking that's your, gun. That's that, it. that is the smoking yeah. gun for that kind of thing. Right. Your your disc is not going to bump with the rest of the film at every single solitary bump, which it should if it's a real object there in the frame. And uh, I got asked to be on a radio show here. I don't know if it's so much local. I don't know if that was locally or it was tri-state area or what have you. But I was on with Dr. McAbee about that, 
And uh, the host of the radio show asked me, what do you think of this video? And I told him. And I said, you know, I can show you frame by frame where this is happening. Dr. McAbee, even though I really respect Dr. McAbee and his work, but at the time, all he had to say to me was, well, our analyst with MUFON has some pretty mondo stuff, and he's looking at it right now. So he said, but at the same time, he said, I saw that there could have been evidence that the disc actually moved with the camera. No. <laughs> and I was like, what? Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, what? Come on. I was like, look, here it is. This is it. And it, I mean, no. I was the very first one to say that. And here, I guess it was <sighs> six months later, six months later, I saw that Dr. McAbee had produced this report from MUFON that said, you know, it, it was a composite hoax. and But it gave this really long and in-depth and fairly overcated scenario of why it was faked rather than just saying it's a CG composite and here's how they did it, you know, and here's the data behind that for, for a layman to look at. A layman would have said, what the hell does that mean, you know? You know, the way I explained it on the radio was just kind of, at the time, just poo-pooed away. And again, that's that's the kind of thing when you when you're looking for something that's genuinely unknown, genuinely strange. A lot of people are very suspicious at first. I guess what I'm getting at is that you really can't go by who says it's legitimate or who says it's very unknown. You've got to look for yourself. You cannot pay attention to. I don't care if they have a PhD or not. Okay, these people can still be wrong about hey, certain. But in cases. this case, of course, Doctor McAbee finally admitted there was something wrong with it. Even though at the beginning he may have expressed something more positive uh, about its yeah. possible reality, in the end he had to admit whether the explanation was complicated or simple or whatnot yeah. that there were problems. Well, the facts remain. Look, you can, like Jeff said, if if a match move, if a camera match has been done improperly, it's actually not that hard to tell. Now that said. I submit to both of you that at this point in time, we are at this incredibly frustrating stage where any photographic or video evidence, I don't care what the origin is or who shot it, is now suspect. And when we spoke to Richard Dolan last week, and I brought this up, he got somewhat upset with me over this. He said, you can't throw it all out. And I said, it's not that you can throw it all out. It's that at this point in time, technologically, if you can imagine a visual sequence or a visual result, you can produce it artificially. And the most interesting example of that, that I have not seen covered in any significant way in the UFO press, is the infamous Australian UFO wave of this year. I, I invite all our listeners to go check out AustralianUFOWave.com. This was a project that this guy Christopher Kenworthy put together that essentially at first purported to be the most compelling footage ever shot of a whole series of UFO episodes in Australia. Um, this footage, I mean, some of it was just astounding. Some of it I looked at and I thought, no, there's a problem with this. And where they really blew their, their whole cover was they had, the, right at the end of this whole project, they put up videos supposedly of an alien. And it was just so obviously fake that a number of us were like, all right, that's it. That's the, that's, that's, they just just blew it. That's a poser um, model. <laughs> well, absolutely. And then, boom, now the guy comes out then, and they revealed that all of this, well, actually, two clips of the 31 clips, I believe, are supposedly real, but all the best clips are basically fabricated, and they look, many of them look really good. The point is that if you have 
the motivation. If you have just a little bit of desktop technology and time, there's no video effect you can't create that can look incredibly compelling. Right. Well, I think it's I think it's what it's boiling down to is I don't know that it's uh, I, I'm between Dolan and you, <laughs> you know I, I'm definitely of the opinion that the hoaxes are getting so good these days that they're getting harder and harder to tell. But at the same time, yeah, you can do any effect, but is there, you know, you have to qualify that by saying is there somebody like you know like you who would be able to go through this this frame by frame and say, uh, yeah, here's a problem, and here's a problem, and here's a problem, and if we combine these problems right. together, here's what our answer is. I think what it boils down to is people just got to be a hell of a lot more diligent about what they're looking at, uh, and they're not. I mean, by virtue right. of reading, you know, just about, you know, every big message board out there, you can see that, you know, there there was one, God, it was uh, a couple weeks ago, somebody sent me a message, what do you think of this one? And I think it was shot in Japan? Oh, that thing where no China, where it blinks China, out at the it. end. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I saw Good that. Lord, please! I said that's a sprite. I said that's not yeah. even a 3D object. I said that's a overlaid sprite. And I said, yep. you know, I don't know how you could even begin to remotely think that that's real. Right. So it's it's you know you, you got the you got the bad hoaxes as far as the the computer generates stuff goes, and then you have the really you know. I mean, the Mexico City one in August is 97. That that was actually pretty good. Uh, the only thing that you that you saw when you were watching, and it was pretty obvious, was you know the camera matching was really poor, but the haze was pretty good. It was good. You know? Yeah, the, the atmosphere was good. The mall was good. The atmospherics yeah. were good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no, the the camera match was off. That, that was, was the part that, that they screwed the, up. That was the killer, and the and the other right. part of the killer was it was the um, the masking of the actual the main building that you saw. There were portions where the disc actually overlapped that building because they didn't have their actual you know their masking material set up correctly to to move with the camera as well. So you get little overlaps. Those kind of things the average person isn't going to see. <laughs> Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, uh, let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to Jeff Ritzman, UFO investigator extraordinaire. And (laughs) if you have any. (laughs) Okay, see, I I just cause people (laughs) to flip out as I give them the introductions. And. If you want to write to us, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com, or check out our message boards at thepowercast.com. Don't be afraid to ask the tough questions. Okay, we're looking at stuff here that's obviously hoaxed. Jeff, what do you regard as genuine? What's the stuff that really turns you on in terms of UFO evidence? I'll tell you the case that really that really sparked me up was the, um, the Ed Walters Gulf Breeze stuff. At the back in the day, really sparked my interest a lot. And little by little, as I started going through that and and seeing, and I, I have to put, you know, I have to put this out there that I at the time had no experience with the Polaroid peel apart type uh, photography at all. So I didn't know what they were exactly capable of doing. But there's, you know, there's if you go on the net and Google, you know, Ed Walters UFO or Gulf Breeze UFO, you'll see these photographs where you have a clearly structured object with, uh, it looks like a top has a little bean on top, and uh, and there are some great shots of the underneath of it, and and all these swirling plasma in it, and all this kind of stuff, and I was just fascinated by that at the time. But you do realize, you know, through investigative people that have done their homework on this, that 
you know, Ed Walters was into doing quote-unquote ghost photographs, that he knew how to deactivate the, the film spit-out of a Polaroid to do a double exposure with that, which immediately throws it into suspect right then and there. That's that's questionable. He did this for kids' parties in his neighborhood. They would have to I have remember. the camera. And then down the line, they also found a model in his house which resembled... Mm the UFO craft however the blueprints essentially the he's a house builder he was a, he was a contractor and the blueprint paper that the model was made from the dates on as i understood it the dates from the blueprints were after he would have shot the craft as a as a model so there was always talk that well somebody probably planted that there to discredit him right and, i think even he implied that i interviewed him yeah, back in and, those years and and you know and but you put all i mean there was even stuff where he had a ufo one of these craft going actually behind a tree and you get okay well you know that that negates a double exposure well it doesn't you know when it comes to a polaroid polaroid has this really interesting feature with its emulsion that it can actually you know overprint a shot and people found that out and that was that was pretty well documented All right, well, as well. Ed Walters, let's put in the waste spin here. Well, well, what, you know, what turns you on? What's really I, good? I have to look at Golf Breeze because I wrote a paper on Golf Breeze years ago that where I actually looked past Ed Walters. I said, okay, maybe, but let me look over here. And when you start going back over the Golf Breeze history, there's a lot of UFO history in that area, long before Ed Walters ever came on the scene, there was uh, military sightings of strange stuff that that the military actually photographed on the runway, and uh, hmm. the the photographs when they were developed showed absolutely nothing. And when I remember writing that when one officer was asked how come they didn't show up in the photographs, he said that's a good question. There was landing swirls, you know, in the grass long before Ed Walters had his. You know his burnt patch behind the high school, and of course, you know Bruce Morrison and some other folks down there had been recording video out of Shoreline Park that was pretty damn strange. When you're talking about they call him Bubba, it's the big red UFO that almost looks like a camera aperture in some of the videos, like opening and closing very quickly, and small little objects dropping out from it and zipping away. And I mean that's heavy duty stuff when you're seeing that on a fairly regular basis. So basically, and, Ed Walters may have jumped into this stuff knowing there were possibly genuine sightings in that area and maybe tried to cash in a little bit, it perhaps. Could be, it, it could be that, or it could be that Ed had a genuine sighting. I also saw footage later on that Ed had shot many years later of a small silver ball that would appear you know, in the sky, say, over the beach. And uh, I mean, I saw a shot that, that Ed Walters had shot years later that was of a small silver ball that was floating in the air you know, a small silver ball as, as opposed to his viewpoint of it, but I'm sure it was fairly large for how big it was in the video. Um, but he's on the beach shooting this thing, you know, uh, plain view, center dead camera, and uh, he's got a man walking towards him with his his back is to the is to this object, and he says to the camera, "If that guy takes four more steps, I'm going to yell to him to turn around." And as soon as he says that, this thing zips away so incredibly fast that. Even if you go frame by frame, this object is nothing more than a white dash. Okay, and this is before the advent of CG composite that anybody would have had access to publicly. And, and to put it, you know, distinctly as I can, it, it absolutely didn't look fake to me. And Ed Walters did shoot it, and he also shot some other stills that were 
pretty compelling as far as I'm concerned as to something going on down there. When I went down there personally, I did not see anything, but I will tell you this. Uh, some folks I was with at the time kept telling me, have you felt the tremors? And I said, no. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And they said, we mean like pinpoint tremors. You can feel it. When you're outside, you could be standing in a group of five people, and it'll feel like you drop down about two feet and then back up again. And I said, I've never heard of such a thing in my life. And the person next to you doesn't feel this? No, they don't. I said, okay, fine. I went the whole trip. I didn't feel a damn thing. And hmm. we're standing out in front of a hotel where they had had the, the Gulf Breeze UFO conference. And uh, <laughs> and I'm standing there getting a picture taken, and all of a sudden my feet drop out from beneath me, and I drop down. It felt like I dropped a foot and a half, two feet down into the ground and back up. I mean, it was that, it was a, that quick. And I said, holy crap, what was that? <laughs> you know, and somebody came up, did you feel that? I said, yeah, what was that? And they said, I don't know. <laughs> you know, is it a weird place? Yeah. I mean, did I record something there that time? I did, but I don't say it was anything. It, it was a big deal at the time that, you know, a UFO had been recorded at the Gulf Breeze UFO conference in broad daylight. I mean, I, I say I didn't say anything, see anything because, frankly, I think it was an airplane. <laughs> but at the time... The conference made a humongous deal of it that I had shot this footage, and personally, I didn't see anything to it. I thought it was interesting at the start, but the more I reviewed it in the camera, I was like, eh, it looks like it could be an airplane turning away, that kind of thing. But Gulf Breeze is a strange place, and, and there are some odd things there, and I can't actually dismiss the fact that I stayed in a room near the water, and it was overcast the entire weekend I was there. <laughs> and I woke up with a sunburn on half my face. Uh, Something didn't like you. You know, I didn't notice it until it started peeling. Uh -huh. And I said, you know, okay, that's that's a little weird. I mean, it wasn't anything as, as hardcore as Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters or anything, but it was it was enough to make my skin peel. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call one 888 U-F-O-M-A-G-A, -A, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
here on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, UFO investigator Jeff Ritzman, talking about, I guess we call the heroes and villains of the UFO field and some of the cases that actually turn him on. If you have comments or questions, send them to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And visit our message boards and tell us what you have to say. David. Jeff, the first time we had you on, we ended the episode starting a conversation or at least just beginning to explore the idea of what your thoughts were about the the possible sources of these entities, these craft. For the most part, when you read most of the literature that's out there, there seems to be a fairly predominant tendency to state that these are interplanetary craft. Mm -hmm. There are specific star systems, like Zeta Reticuli, that are referenced over and over. Uh Um, When we were on the show last time, you started to intimate that perhaps this was too constrictive of a view. So at this point, would you care to uh, perhaps expand a little upon that thought? Sure. you got to preface this by saying that, uh, you know, I'm not a particularly religious guy at all, but I did have kind of a an interesting thing occur uh, at one point um, I know we left off the last time talking about my wife and I going to um, an area that's not far from our home and seeing the the disc and and having an experience up there of, of some missing time and or flat out recall of something very bizarre going on but from there is pretty much where the floodgates kind of opened for me at that point in, uh, in, in, in not only in having sightings, but just this bizarre feeling that you would get at certain times that really came out of nowhere. And I, at the time, I, I also, despite my wife seeing things and, and friends that I would hang around with at the time seeing odd things in the house or seeing odd things when we were outside, I mean, the bottom line is that I lost a lot of friends over this kind of thing because they just didn't want to be around it. And that was really, really bothersome for my wife and I being, you know, a fairly young couple at the time. Um, But as the floodgates seemed to open for me and as I started to see more and and actually talk to more people uh, about what they had seen, uh, I started keeping a little notebook of commonalities of of things that seemed to match up with not only me, but with other people that I hadn't experienced, but other people had experienced across the board. And at one point, I got excruciatingly frustrated at that there was no real answers coming forth to me over you know 13 or 14 years at the time that I could really put my finger on and I said you know <laughs> this just doesn't smell like you know extraterrestrials from planet X you know coming here and and doing this kind of thing there's this whole perception there's this whole you know the perception issue is a big one for me because you know knowing and seeing how the mechanics of this same thing seem to operate. It, it, I think um, the, Jim Mosley had said something about the trickster when he was on here with you all, just briefly mentioned that, that he thought that that could be a, a possible kind of direction. And I'm not completely opposed to that line of thinking either, that, um, that there may be no real agenda, that there may be no real purpose. But I, as I became frustrated with looking for answers, I started going back through those files, those, those spiral notebooks over and over, and I started to see this, this uh, commonality uh, in, in, in the people, but not so much what happened to them, but that how they responded to it. I mean, in the end, 
how they felt. You're not studying UFOs, you know? You, yeah, right. you're not studying UFOs because we don't have any, okay, that, that we can get. Uh, you're, you're studying the effects on people, UFO reports filed by people and how it affected them. And as I started going through that, I saw that, number one, a lot of people who have sightings and or contact abduction, whatever you want to call them, experiences, not only do they get divorced, they, uh, you know, if one has the experience and the other one doesn't, there's friction there. Because the one that does have the experience is going to have a burning desire to figure out why, almost to the point of obsession, that their, their, their mate is not going to understand nor want to be involved with. That often results in, in a divorce type of scenario because, you know, you either have uh, marital problems from lack of time being devoted to the marriage versus their search for, you know, aliens. You have people turning away from religion. Uh, if they're Christian, if they're Jew, if they're God knows what all religion, it doesn't matter. Um, the bottom line is, is that these people will start to honestly and earnestly believe that aliens seated us here. Um, you know, the whole, there is no God, there is only them. They put us here, we're direct descendant of them, this is all an experiment, blah, blah, blah. You will see that, again, the obsessive nature uh, this will consume your life if you let it. If you're that type of person that it's going to have an experience and then you're not going to stop until you find out what's going on. you know. And I became, I became one of those people. I mean, I was literally 100% engrossed and obsessed uh, in the subject. And when I actually got control of my head and stepped back, these were the commonalities that I saw in people. I also saw cultural similarities in that the people who have the, the, the abduction experience uh, fit into a particular pattern. Now, I can't guarantee this 100%, but it was a definite big chunk of people that I spoke with. Germanic and or Celtic slash Irish descent somewhere. Number two had definite involvement in occult practices, whether it be something as mundane as a Ouija board or, you know, a witchcraft uh, practitioner, that type of thing. Above average IQ, which I thought was really hysterical because, you know, everybody wants to say the UFO nuts, you know, when in fact <laughs> most of these people have above average IQ. But that implies above average imagination. Well, yeah, or right. able to, or able to uh, you know, extrapolate really far-reaching theories, that, that kind of thing. And uh, and I didn't find, you know, another thing that people say is, oh, well, they were drunk or they were high or what have you. And I don't find an overabundance of people, you know, excuse me, who had had that kind of background. You know, most of these were just average people. I mean, these were average people. And also, like you mentioned, uh, Dave, uh, the, the creative aspect, the creative mm -hmm. people, people who can visualize uh, right. are a big thing. So looking at all that, I see this commonality of people being essentially turned away from spirituality and more geared towards the alien or the technological answers for why are we here, that kind of thing. And the more I looked at that, the more I saw that that was a, that was a across the board kind of thing. And uh, I said, well, there's a word for that, you know, and, and, uh, and, and not only that, but judging then going into their accounts of what had happened to them, you know, the the, the horrible, the frustration, the uh, wanting proof and not being able to get it, the anguish of the obsession, the, you know, the torment of you're going to see just this much and we're going to dangle the carrot over here, you know, that kind of thing. You know, I said, well, you know, most people would look at this and say, that's demonic. Mm. But I can't 
I can't speak to that and say that's a demon because <laughs> what the hell do I know what a demon looks like? I mean, I don't know what I don't know how that operates. But I was told by a couple of researchers that that they had found similar aspects to it and that it did have this portion of people who had had a legitimate experience. It kind of you could fit it into that kind of box. And I said, "Wow, you know, does nobody want to talk about that?" Or is, one researcher told me that is the equivalent of UFO career suicide to say right. that it is a, a demonic type of nature. Basically, the aliens you, have to be friendly. I think that's everybody's wish. You know, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people I asked. You know, if you could stop the abduction experience, would you? And I expected. I mean, I know at the time. If you'd asked me that, I'd have said, hell yes, yeah, no question about it, please, yes. <laughs> you know, um, but the majority of people I asked said, well, not if there's something to learn. I'm like, <laughs> well, what have you learned so far? Well, nothing. Well, then w what's the problem? You know, uh, and, you know, I don't say that those people were faking it, but I don't know that they were having the same kind of experiences that a lot of other people were having, including myself, that they wouldn't want something like that to stop. Let me ask you something. Do you ever think about the possibility that some of your experiences, I'm not saying all of them, but some of your experiences were some sort of government disinformation program? In the whole of experience-wise, no. I don't think so. Of course I can't say 100% sure. I mean, who could? Nobody can. I only had one particular instance where... I knew that there was a government interaction, I guess. Mm -hmm. That was honestly the reason that I stopped with the whole thing. I mean, I dropped it um, not very much longer after that. I mean, I, I have to, I have to finish out my thought here with, with, uh, you know, the origin type aspect of what happened because it's, mm -hmm. it, it is pretty surprising. I think you're going to get a maybe a different angle on this, but I had a lecture to give in Washington, D.C. about a week after the demonic idea entered my head that could this be it? And I thought to myself, am I going to go to this lecture and not say this, or am I going to say it and just let the chips fall? And I really toiled over it. Bad. <laughs> really bad. Because um, I said, you know, I think I feel like I have uh, these people that I spoke to, I, I identified with them to a certain degree, and some of them were my friends, and I'm like, can I keep this away from them? Can I not say this publicly? And, and, and at the time, people used to tell me online, people used to tell me in person, you're the most credible guy because when you don't know something, you just say you don't know. You know, you don't make up a story and you don't have anything that's so outlandish. And a man had, had said to me online one time, I hope you realize that the the influence that you have, because so many people listen to what you have to say, and I hope that you don't ever take that for granted. And I don't. You know, I never have. Um, and and that's that's not only, I mean, it was complimentary, but at the same time, that scared the hell out of me that people were thinking so much of what I said. That, we're running out of time here, Jeff, you know, so we're going to have to yeah. come to a conclusion. Well, what ended up happening was that uh, I woke up one morning, and, and my wife and I were getting dressed to go out. And um, this was after a night where we had friends over uh, where we were talking about this very subject and uh, how I could deal with telling people in D.C. or should I not. What ended up happening was we woke up the next morning, and uh, there was a mirror in our bedroom that had a symbol drawn on it. I didn't draw it, my wife didn't draw it, and my son was a little, little, little boy who couldn't have even reached it. Um, and the symbol, 
we couldn't figure out what it meant, where it came from, or anything else. Uh, I ended up calling, I, I'm trying to pronounce his name, I think it's Mario Paglini, or Paglini. He, um, he was a ancient writings expert, professor out of uh, Delaware. I called him, I faxed him the symbol, and I said to him, have you ever seen this? Do you know what it means? He responded back to me in about two days saying that uh, he had never seen a symbol in this configuration. Uh, but that it was known as angelic writing. And I said, well, what does it mean? He said, well, it's a challenge, essentially. And I said, well, what, what is it? What, if you could put it into English terms, what does it say? And he said, well, essentially it says, now you know, do you have the courage to stand up for what you believe? <laughs> and he says, does that have any bearing on anything in your life right now? And I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to D.C. and I said what I had to say, and I was really surprised at the at the feedback I got from it. Did it end my UFO speaking? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely did. So uh, you know, hey, it's not a popular theory, but uh, you know, it, it's it's not always the direction I go for every case. But I can't deny there's a certain portion of it that that, that points in that direction for me. I'll tell you what. This direction has to be the end of this discussion and maybe the beginning of many more. Thank you for joining us, Jeff Ritzman, on The Paracast. Thanks, buddy. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.